it's the it's the real part that you you're really you're right on the money. I mean, the first note to anyone who wants to start writing is write what you know. It doesn't have to be what you love. If you know it and you want to write about it, there's love and hate in it, right? There's, you know, there's whatever it is, it's real to you and that's writing what you know and that's the that's all I did when I sat down to write. I had no idea about structure. I didn't know. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, first feature series, episode 22. I'm Leslie Shannon. And I'm Elise Siebert. Today's topic is writing with writer, director, producer, Tony Sparadakis. We have a seaside conversation about knowing film history, finding the story no matter your title, and all the writing writing advice advice ever. Because now I can't remember anyone's name that I should remember. Because it's full of everyone else with the MFI name. Right. I'm yeah. just like, it's pretty crazy. But I totally love that you guys formed that uh, friendship. And, and it's um, it's kind of what everything, you know, that's well, kind of what it's all about. And that was a large doing. reason that's why we really, started it, too, yeah. is because yeah. we wanted we to build We can just skip the whole thing now I can just tell you that's what it's all about yeah no it is <laughs> it really it is. is I mean it totally is yeah I mean yeah. I had all MFI people at my apartment mm-hmm. last week to read the first act of our script like they it's, all showed up and they were all there like they're so supportive and yeah you well, know because you know how much of a difference it makes when yeah. you're there for someone and how important it is to be <clears throat> there for them mm-hmm. oh my god it's um, so true because that's something that's really complicated when people don't understand how how heavy something like that is for you, how hard it is to, like, I mean, having a reading, sharing mm-hmm. things that you've written with other yeah. people, mm-hmm. even if you've done it for a while, if you're unsure about something or you're trying something new, it's scary. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's really scary because you're like, oh, well, here's a piece of myself that I am exposing to the world mm-hmm. and they could shit on it or they could really like it. Who knows? But... It's like finding a way to separate your vindication as a human through your art, too. Yeah, and not every process is the same, because not every person's the same. Some people beg for the love of their audience, and that serves well. But then there's nothing wrong with that, because it's like that Sally Field thing where she said, you know, oh, you really like me. You know, that was such a... Everyone made fun of it, but it was such an honest... Um, moment yeah I thought it was crushing really because yeah you know that's who she is as an actress like she doesn't have Meryl's chops mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she just has Sally Fieldness yeah 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 and a lot of Sally Fieldness is like if you look at all her close-ups there's yearning there's love me all over every frame even when she did shitty movies yeah like Smokey and the Bandit yeah like I, I totally did like a whole analysis of that, and I thought there's a real it's really interesting person who acts that way, who is from that, and it got her a couple of Academy Awards, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. at least one yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then there's uh, and then there are the beautiful accidents, like um, models who turn actress who are like in the right role, I'm trying to think of the woman who was married to Sam Shepard, who's in American Horror, Gothic, whatever oh, that is. Oh, I can't think she of her name She was in Tootsie. Right 
We yes. don't remember names either because yeah. they're too yeah, full of everyone else's name. You got to remember. You got <laughs> to remember. This names. is the thing that I I have to say. You know, are you recording? Yeah, this? yeah. we're the, always recording. Yeah. The um, the this referencing that we're doing now, mm-hmm. I think it's really important, and I kind of get frustrated because I just talk to my 15-year-old directors the same way I talk to my 30-year-old directors the same way I talk to my 70-year-old yeah. actor directors. And I don't mince words about this. I feel like if you're a student, you should be doing the work and you should know these references. I, 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 I sometimes, you know... No, I think, I think that's a really good point. You know? yeah. Yeah. And I remember the very first student we accepted to our program was I think he was 14 or 15 and we had just started MFI and I got a a lead from a teacher at this school in Pennsylvania he was the very first like like we put up our website and we we got nothing you know (laughs) (laughs) we we thought oh we put up a website the world they'll be lined up you know and and we'll and and we didn't, and it was like a month, and we finally had a lead, and this kid from Pennsylvania called me. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm talking to a 14-year-old, you know? Mm-hmm. And I start like, oh, I'm so kind of angry about it, and I start referencing, like, set movies from the 70s and how they, you know, were the antiheroes, and now the antiheroes now on television and Breaking Bad, and that's where that came from. It was from The Shield, to Breaking Bad, to where we, we had characters that were the leads who were anti-heroic. They yeah. were not nice people. Tony right. Soprano was not a nice person. And yet he was the center of the entire Sorry. drama, right? Yeah. And that was a v- thing from the 70s. And this little voice on the other end was like... He rattled <laughs> He rattled off five easy pieces directed by Rafelson starring Jack Nicholson. He talks about how it actually, Tony, it started in the late (laughs) sixties with easy rider. And I was like, I was like, Oh my God. I was so, I, I, my heart filled. I was just, I, he was our first Greg Voigt. Oh, I was yeah. Greg Boyd. Yeah. He was like encyclopedic. Yeah, he is. He (laughs) He had every, he has a lot of knowledge, you know, um, And that was, that was, uh, it always stuck with me that, you know, I always tell people that story about Greg because I'm like, listen, guys, you got to know, you know, um, these references. But anyway, in talking about different types of actors, this model, who we will think of her name, uh, eventually it will come to me, but she was so beautiful and she did a movie where she played an actress who was had a mental breakdown. The it was, and she actually either won the Academy Award. I think she nominated was nominated, and it was. It took place. She was the woman who was in. Oh, I want to say Golden Girl, and um, it was about this true life. Francis, Francis, it was Francis Farmer's life. Francis okay, okay. was the actress who uh, had been betrayed, fell in love with the playwright. Um, from the 40s and 50s and uh, was part of the group theater and Ilya Kazan used her and and Frances had a breakdown and everyone turned their back on her because of her mental illness, her bout with depression and ultimately a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And the actress who had really not been known as anything more than a supermodel Mm -hmm. 
played that part and blew everybody's minds. And I thought, well, then there's that actress, right? There's that actress who's just innately interesting. And, you know, um, Polanski did that a lot. I mean, with his uh, films, he'd take actors that had never acted before because they had some sort of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then there's, you know, then there's Merrill who trained and trained and is impeccable. Wonderful. And, you know, you don't know, so. Anyway. Yeah. And yeah. being, I think it's being brave enough to go there too. It's like this, mm -hmm. this, we, I mean, I think as actors, we're trying to learn how to get back to that childlike, like just being who you are in space and not having those masks on that we develop as. Or people who never got to be child. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's true too. Forced to be yeah. adults when they were eight because they were yeah. in such a bad situation. That's also interesting. I mean, those, those people have. Jump right to John Cazale, who I think is one of the greatest actors and has now sort of had a resurgence of who is John Cazale. Mm -hmm. And John Cazale, if you don't know, was Fredo in The Godfather. Yeah. He was Sal in um, Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. He started his first role where he got any attention in New York was doing Indian Wants the Bronx with Al Pacino at the 13th Street Playhouse in Greenwich Village, which was a play by... I'm going to forget his name. He, his, <laughs> we'll make it okay, there. Here, here's how, here's how my mind I, works. I'm like, okay, now I Indian need to Wants go. Indian Wants the Bronx was written by Israel Horovitz, okay. whose son started the Beastie Boys. Ah. Just to give you a little uh, wow. tour of what names actually mean. But Israel yeah. Horovitz wrote this play that ran forever. And the two kids who were like 18, 19 years old who decided to put it up at the 13th Street Playhouse were John Cazale and Al Pacino. And... And if you, if John Cazale was in The Deer Hunter, he was, it's like he is the consummate actor who never, it seemed to me, <laughs> he was so lovely in real life, supposedly, but when he acts, it's just pure and from some other place that's just so real. And mm -hmm. I, I can't describe it, but you should check out John yeah. Cazale's acting. But, no. but yeah, the, the, the connection between this conversation about acting and making film and or writing and or directing and or sound design and or editing is the thesis that I kind of have come to believe is true. And that is that all these disciplines within this art form are connected. That the same, you put on the same slacks and shirt in the morning when you get dressed to go outside, if you're gonna go to direct, write, act, or any of these other things because you're just trying to tell a story and make people care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the foundation, rock bottom, you know, that's that's the job description. So one of the things that teaching at uh, college level and then privately and then all through my life I taught, it, it occurred to me that in, in terms of being an acting student first, that's what I was first, that there was no difference between that and what I was trying to accomplish as a writer. You know, I was using the same exact musculature. Like, I was thinking the same things. I was like, what's the scene about? Mm -hmm. what, how am I going to do this? What's going to happen here? How, who am I? <laughs> and it was the same exact thing for when I directed or what you, produced. What do you think gets in the way of finding the story? Like, what are those... 
like when something doesn't work, when a movie doesn't work or, sh or a show doesn't work. Boy, that's a tough question. Yeah. I mean, I think more often than not, things don't work. Mm -hmm. So it's a great question because mm -hmm. it's the larger percent <laughs> seems to be. <laughs> you know, it usually doesn't, doesn't work. work. <laughs> <laughs> is, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> probably. You're like, and truth bomb. <laughs> you know, let's just start with that mm -hmm. yeah. you know, lively premise. Well, right? then I guess, again, it goes back to being brave, brave enough to fail because you're going to fail, you know? That's how you... It, without question. Yeah. I think we can, you know, all say that courage is a prerequisite to what we do. Because, <laughs> like, you got to have that and or be stupid. Yeah. Like, you know, so that you're not aware. <laughs> I think that... I, I think Either one works. Courage or stupidity. Yeah. In many, in many places in life, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it comes in handy, I have to say. If you're in a situation that's seemingly unwinnable or undoable stupidity could help you <laughs> you know that 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 was my story I think for sure because when I started writing it was out of necessity and I didn't know and I didn't know anything really about how I mean this is going to sound so ludicrous but it it didn't dawn on me that every single person around my age with my sort of difficulty making it as an actor would turn at some point to writing. But I literally thought I was the first person on the to planet do that. To, to do that. Like, You're never. Like, this makes so much sense. And that was the stupidity that carried me really far through rejection after rejection. Because I was just like, well, they'll catch on to this. This is, it's such a new concept. <laughs> Like I'm an innovator. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're a pioneer of sorts. And mm -hmm. you're going to have to, you know, wait for the people to catch up. <laughs> what, was the, what was the hardest thing for you transitioning from an actor to a writer? Or was it a slow, I mean, you were still acting, right? While you were writing for a long time? Yeah, it was immediate. Yeah. I mean, it was like I had broken, I had been broken mm -hmm. in one night, in one day of my life. I was completely broken as an actor and I remember thinking it's I'm either going to just never do it again or I'm going to do this other thing as a means to do it on my terms and that was uh not premeditated that was like getting kicked in the balls and then waiting till you can breathe again hoping you don't throw up and then get back out and Mm -hmm. fight the bull again like it was so again stupidity I think on, <laughs> on a certain level but I used to tell people I lived on the first floor of an apartment on West End Avenue and if I jumped I would have only broken my ankle so <laughs> the alternative was to like literally sit down that night and write a script and it was because I had had two incredibly uh do you know that story mm -mm, I don't <sighs> this, yeah. is a, this is a right, yeah. Well, there, there. I always loved this quote from Cassavetes. Was when asked why he became an actor, he said, "Because I tried everything else, and I was really bad at it." And so there, you know, I was good looking. There were girls in class, and I just went that way. There was no, 
I want to change the world. I, you know, I want to be a Picasso. I want to, you know, <laughs> become the father of independent film. None of that. He was just, you know, Fell he sucked it. at everything else. That's what, you know. And um, for me, I was an actor who had some psychological uh, barrier with my, I, I always got jobs, always, like at very high levels. But then I always disappointed myself or others in uh, the performance. And, and that was, um, I mean, to the tune of like, I auditioned for Williamstown. I got, you know, I was, the, I was in, I auditioned for the Yale School of Drama. I was in, I, I auditioned for Stanley Kubrick. I got cast and asked which role I wanted. I auditioned for Jim Cameron. I got offered a role wow. in that. I, it just was constant, like, it was stupid. And, and, and I didn't know what I was doing really to a certain extent. Um, but I was passionate and I was more in the, I was sort of a combination. I was more in the Sal, I kind of like a Sally Fieldish kind of like, like, I think when you watched me on stage, it was like, oh my God, whatever he's doing, I have to root for him because he's going to have a heart attack. Otherwise, it was, <laughs> it's like he know, needs my yeah. support right now. <laughs> I remember doing a scene for, uh, at Circle in the Square where I first started studying acting for the first time and, 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 a, and I got a very, very good response to a scene that I did from Modigliani and, and this actress came up to me and she was kind of upset with and I said, well, Katie, why are you upset? And she said, because it was like you were just like begging us to love you and we did. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, I guess that's okay, right? I mean, like, what is this acting thing anyway other than, right? But... But anyway, um, I had done uh, television. I had gone to Yale Drama, and after a year, I got a series, and I left Yale Drama, and I did a series. And that series lasted eight episodes, and I came back to New York, and I did theater, which I loved more than anything, and I hated being in front of a camera, to tell you the truth. But then I kind of got broke, and I went up for... I had a very good agent, Meg Mortimer, who was lovely, she's still around, and um, and she sent me in for something, and I got uh, this film in London because I was allowed to work in London because I, at the time, was married to a British subject. So I went to London, and I did Death Wish 3, which was horrible. <laughs> but I, you know, was acting, and I was getting paid, and I was working with Charles Bronson and, and Martin Balsam, who was in 12 Angry Men and mm -hmm. won an Academy Award and is a beautiful, since passed away, but beautiful actor. And um, I heard about an audition while I was in London shooting this film and I auditioned for Stanley Kubrick, was doing, um, he never meets actors, he only puts them on tape, so I went and I got put on tape. At the same time, Jim Cameron was casting um, Aliens after he had done Terminator. And he was going to do the, he was the heir apparent to the, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, long story short, I got offered both parts. I picked the Kubrick part, went back to New York, started training because I was going to go back to London in September to do the, the Kubrick. And, um, and the part that I was up for was uh, in, in Terminator went to Bill Paxton, it was Hudson, the guy who was like, no man, I ain't going down there, no way. He was like a, a Marine who was kind of a coward okay. and hysterical, okay. one really great character, and Bill was freaking brilliant in it. 
But in any case, I chose to do Kubrick. And I went and I worked with Kubrick. And I came back from working with Kubrick. I then auditioned five times for John Shanley's first film, Five wow. Corners, which was starring Jodie Foster and John Turturro. And, and, it, and, it, and I got it. And I, and I got this part in Five Corners. And I'm thinking, like, I did the right thing. You know, I turned down Aliens. I did, I worked with the great Stanley Kubrick, and I fell, I loved Stanley Kubrick. He and I became very close, and, and it was a real, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and I had just auditioned five times, gotten five corners, and I went for my fitting, and the contract was done, and I, and I went home, and I, and I had gotten a call from American Film Magazine because I had the second largest speaking role in Full Metal Jacket. And so I was like, oh, God, I didn't. I called Matt Ledeen, and I said, did you do this interview? Because Stanley doesn't like people doing interviews. Oh. And he goes, yeah, I did it. And I was like, oh, God, okay, I'm a whore. I'll do it. You know, let Stanley Kubrick say what he wants, right? I'll just do this. So I do the interview with American Film Magazine, and literally at, like, 5 o'clock, I get a call from Meg, and she's like, um, I heard something. I got to call you back, but I'm... I'm I'm just giving you a heads up. You'll get a call from Tony Bill, the director, like of Five Corners at like six o'clock. I'm like, okay, cool. That means, don't worry. Why are you worried? And I said, I don't know. It just seems that it came out of the blue. And then I get a call from London, and it's Stanley Kubrick saying that I've been cut out of Full Metal Jacket. And I was like, oh, and I don't want to tell him like I just did this interview. Like now I'm being punished, right? Like yeah. maybe he knows I did the interview, and yeah. he, I'm like, Stanley, <laughs> he yeah. cut you out of the film. I said, Stanley, did you cover? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, I don't care about that. He goes, like you know, it's just I, the middle of the film is gone, and and you are the middle of the film. And I was like, doesn't matter. I have this great job with this new writer, John Patrick Shanley, and and it's his first film. And I'm really excited, and I work, you know. And he's like, great, great. I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, don't worry. I'll come to London. We'll. You'll show me the scene. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't do that for anybody, but I'll do that for you. I was like, okay, great. I hang up the phone, and then like 15 minutes later, Tony Bill calls, and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but I have to fire you. And I was like, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just did a costume fitting. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's, uh, you know, and, I was, and I'm just like, it was because, I mean, getting into what was it because of, it was literally because I, according to, Shanley or John Turturro or because John and I went to Yale together and anyway we when I was much thinner I kind of looked like a like a younger version or a younger brother or his too close to him in mm-hmm. a way and he was this villain and I was just this sweet stupid smaller part John Turturro was I don't know if you saw Five Corners but he plays a sociopath and he's it's like the tour de force that he did in Danny in the Deep Blue Sea he was doing playing this unbelievable character and they felt that I bumped into that mm. and I was summarily paid treated with apology but lost the role for no no reason no reason yeah. other than for yeah. just the way that you look yeah, yeah. it happens all the time all you know? the time right and I didn't know this but it happened and so now I, I didn't pick aliens I've been cut out of full metal jacket and the job that I had that was going to help save my sanity is gone and that was the most crushing moment of my life and that night I sat down and I started writing my own five corners which became Queen's Logic Um, and that's how I started writing 
That's incredible. That's an amazing story. What a way to turn a a disappointing part of life into something that has been your saving grace. Without a doubt, it's got to be one of the things I can, and I'm very hard pressed to say what I do well. I don't have easy time with that, but I will say that I'm pretty tenacious or I have a very high threshold for pain or something because it always made sense to me that from your lowest point, the most is possible. Because you have the most really, to go. Exactly. Yeah. So I remember hearing in a political science class about the Great Depression that, you know, the Great Depression caused people to jump off buildings the day of. And then the next day, it was the people who invested in the stock market who became the wealthiest Americans. Mm -hmm. So think about it. At that day of the absolute and total lowest point, two things were going to happen. People were either going to take their lives or people were going to scrape together whatever they had and put it right back Back in. in. Wow. So that always struck me as an incredible, what, what's the, it, it's a, there's a fancy word for it. And I, I, and I, oh, I can't think of it, but it's like, that's the place. That's like rare. It's being, and, and you know, it's like when you're in a foxhole and you're surrounded, that's when you find God. They say it's foxhole religion or whatever mm-hmm. they call that. Yeah. Like, I think it's the same thing. I think that, you know, you have two choices when you're at the bottom and that, somehow I don't know why I made made sense to me and I started writing Queen's Logic and literally like a year and two months later I was shooting a film in my neighborhood with John Malkovich and Kevin Bacon and which is incredible which was ridiculous Jamie Lee Curtis ridiculous no it was it was such a lucky such I mean you know because it it was luck it was such a great film to capture queens like Mm -hmm. especially in that time period it's it it really captured the nuances of the neighborhood even like the little like background people and how they were dressed and what they were doing was just Mm -hmm. so specific yeah and the guy washing the madonna that's yes that's literally what my neighbor tommy did every saturday morning it's those little things, though, you're right, that that allow you to make these people real and to care about them because that's really what, as storytellers, we want to do, right? We want to bring the audience in and we want them to care. And the more uh, nuance for you specifically at that time, talking about queens helped you because you, you see that every day, right? Yeah. And so you're able to bring such life to that that other people who were would have written from outside of Queens wouldn't have been able to do as accurately. And that's why it's, that's why. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's why oh, when the characters are lovable and when the characters are real, people attach themselves to it. And less whether the characters are lovable or not. It's yeah, the, it's, it's the, the real part that yeah. you, you're really you're right on the money. I mean, the first note to anyone who wants to start writing is write what you know. It doesn't have to be what you love. If you know it, and you want to write about it, there's love and hate in it, right? There's, you yeah, know, there's well, whatever it is, it's real to you. And that's writing what you know. And that's the, that's all I did when I sat down to write. I had no idea about structure. I didn't know. There was no plot in Queen's Logic. It was all dialogue, you know, it was all 
just character observation after character observation. Yeah. And, and I mean, I tried to give it some shape of event, and the event kept changing. Like, it, it, you know, Queen's Logic was initially, the event was that these five friends go off uh, to try to have a fishing weekend and end up hunting raccoons. because the the raccoons are eating all their supplies and they're like this is it we're not taking this and we like they got guns and they like go into the woods and it just becomes a true story or that That is totally yeah 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 and i was like and it was called the great raccoon hunt which i think i have to write now that i just pitched it you should i really like no one will be able to do it as accurately as you because it's what you know but uh but that was and that was about a real group of friends i mean there were these five friends that were you know, the only thing I regret is about Queen's Logic is that there was, in real life, it was uh, Zapoli, Centroni, Aquilina, Savino, and Spiridakis. And I had, there was one Greek. And I, they were like, it's too confusing. Like, just make them all Italian. And I did that. And I remember thinking, that was so stupid. Like, First of all, it got me in trouble with everyone in Astoria who was Greek before you guys knew what Astoria was. It was all <laughs> Greek and Italian yeah. and Irish, right? So it was purely, absolutely believable that Greeks and Italians would be friends. But to the Hollywood elite, it mm. was like, what? No, we don't understand that. And then the other thing they wanted to get rid of, which I didn't get rid of, which was that one of those Italian guys was gay. And he was, and the other guys were like, were like Tony Soprano kind of guys, perhaps, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they they were all my friends. And one of us was this gay guy who had never, he had been like, he was a 28-year-old or 30-year-old virgin. But we, he, we were the only ones who knew he was gay. Like, and so we like conspired to get him laid, you know. Mm. And, and we all lived in the same apartment, which was incredible. Yeah. So that became the, I know what the word is, nexus. It's the nexus, right? The nexus for that story was determined by five guys who I had only seen portrayed in movies as Tony Soprano, but I had never seen them portrayed as people with dreams that were treated with intelligence or sensitivity or anything. They Mm -hmm. were always just brutish, violent, misunderstood louts who are either going to, you know, bravado their way into your heart and be that kind of character or that, but they, to me, they all seem cliched because what was real was my friend who was violent, but wanted to be a painter, Mm -hmm. you know, or Mm -hmm. like a guy, like, or the the character Kevin Bacon played was my best friend who went to Hollywood to become a, you know, to be a musician, wanted Mm -hmm. to be a student. And he, and he, and he was, (laughs) it's the best line ever. It's true. It was like, we all were like Hollywood, you know, and he was like, Hollywood's a dump, man. It's it's like Skid Row. It's like, it's like, he he just like, he was like, and I I remember like, like when I, I, I was the actor in New York who, you know, who was trying to get to Hollywood and De- and and Dennis, his name was there, and he was like, "You don't want to go there." You don't want to go. He's, he's like, "It's horrible it's here." Horrible. It's kind of a precursor to like the Friends era. Like Friends yeah. was such a big hit because it was like making your friends your family. Like mm-hmm. a, sh- a lot of shows up to that had been about family, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what 
Queen's Lodge. It, yeah, it's you about were surrogate this, friend. Yeah, I mean, surrogate fam- family. family. They yeah. were my family. They yeah. were my family. That's but what I, I have to say, I was on the back of many great movies that had already done that, namely Diner, which mm-hmm. was the greatest, in my opinion. Uh, you know, everyone said, well, Queen's Logic is like Diner. Yeah, it's like Diner. But if, if you want the real, I mean, Diner was a masterpiece, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think Queen's Logic could have been, uh, but too many compromises were made. I think that I wanted there to be authenticity. Mm-hmm. And none of the characters were really from Queen's except me. The director was from Texas. He had no clue about um, what it was like to be from Queens. We, I remember doing a reading, and, and Joe Montagna, who's a, who a wonderful actor, he was like, what is the deal with these guys? Like, And I remember saying to him, I'll tell you the deal with these guys. They're from Queens, Joe, and that means that they're not Brooklyn or the Bronx. They get treated like third-class citizens. Staten Island gets a bigger fucking ride. <laughs> publicity-wise than Queens. Than Queens yeah, like, Queens yeah. is the uh, is that bastard child who's looking for love and attention. Like, yeah. so we're super defensive. Like, yeah. we absolutely have a viol- violent streak a mile long because we're ready to hit anybody because we always think they're dissing us. Like, that was how it was when I was growing up. <laughs> and it was a hard place to grow up because it was a lot of fighting. But the fighting was based on, like, look at me, we're good. We're just like the Bronx. Or we're just like, you know. And it was... um. It was that kind of, so it was like a deeply insecure borough. And mm-hmm. I thought that was very funny. That is Because funny. it was about five guys who all were deeply insecure yeah. about who would take them seriously if they wanted to be a painter, if they wanted to be a musician, who would actually, who yeah. would, so one of the great things that happened was when we weren't even done filming and the New York Times had read the script and they, and they literally stated like that the point of view of this film was to spurn stereotypes to make you look at the guys who you've seen in movies portrayed as stereotypes who would be embrace a gay guy who would ever think that that was something that these stereotype macho Italian guys would do but that's in fact what was Mm -hmm. and so I had to fight I caved on the Greek thing but I would not cave on losing the gay character and and I remember unfortunately I felt like the film got buried, and it did for many reasons, not having anything to do with the gay character. However, I felt that I was making a statement about how being gay was just absolutely normal if it were to be put into the hands of people who had heart and intellect. And even though they talked like this, they still were deeply human mm-hmm. and 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 empathetic and and it didn't matter. And like another thing about Queens is that it's like, who cares? You yeah. know, like you're gay. <laughs> like, like right, so let's, what? Like let's, whatever. Now, let's, yeah. Are you hungry? Like, yeah. let's go get a bur- <laughs> like the, you know what I mean? Like we got to eat. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like the end of that great movie. Some like it hot. Like, but mm-hmm. I'm a man. And he's like, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> you know, like it, who cares? Like that yeah. was the genius of that type of writing that mm-hmm. I was always drawn to. And so. You know, that was why I didn't want to give up on that character, who Malkovich played so beautifully. Really, really great. Oh. What 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 would your advice be to young writers when they start meeting with networks or Netflix or whatever, and those compromises, like these, these network heads want these compromises to be made? Like, wh- how do you know when to give in and when to not? Like, you gave in with the Greek thing, but you didn't with the gay um. friend thing. Things have changed 
drastically since, I mean, when I had those meetings, it was 1989, mm -hmm. right? The film didn't come out till 91, but we started shooting in 89, I think. And, and it was a very different time. I mean, um, I had never done anything. I had never written anything. I was only, I'd only acted in a few things. I was a stage actor. I'd been on a TV series. I'd done a few things, but I, this was really, for all intents and purposes, I was going to act in one of the roles and I was going to, and they, and they didn't, they promised they wouldn't rewrite me, which was unheard of at that time. And no one would ever do that again. And, and, and I don't know how well it worked out for them when they did it with me, but, but they, um, films are businesses and television now is a huge business. I think that The answer to that question is you believe in what you believe in up until the point where more people believe against you. And if you're not Vince Gilligan or David Chase or who am I naming now? I'm naming very incredible showrunner, mm -hmm. writer, creators, right? Mm -hmm. That's when typically the network will defer to them because their records speak for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in a position where you have done that, like when Shanley got his first deal, John Patrick Shanley, he was such a respected voice in the theater. Who would want to change his words? Like, yeah. forget it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, that would be a bad idea. But Mamet didn't get that deal. And, you know, Mamet got, took jobs all the time and they were constantly rewriting him. And, you know... And I'll, I'll get, if you remind me, I'll tell you a great story about that with Sidney Lumet and The Verdict, which was written originally by Mamet, and they changed it nine times. And Sidney Lumet, and I'll, here comes the story. It was, uh, <laughs> he, he basically said, I, I, I can't get an actor to sign off on this because the script's not right. The script's not right. And they kept paying for people to rewrite so that Sidney never even knew who had written the first draft. So finally, after the ninth, uh, which was to him like six, I think, drafts, he said, Who, where's the first one? Like from the book, because it was based on a book. So he just wanted, he goes, because we're not capturing the book. For some reason, I'm not wanting to make this movie. And every actor I'm giving it to is turning it down. So what's going, what, give me the first one. And he gets the script and it was written by David Mamet. And he finished the script and he called the studio and he said, we're not changing a word. This is the script we're going with or get another director. Wow. They gave the script to Paul Newman and the rest is history and the verdict was made exactly as Mamet had written it. But the, the, the common wisdom at the studio level was it was a disaster. Who's gonna wanna see a guy in the first scene? Do you know what the first scene I of the verdict is? I don't know what the first he scene is. He goes to a funeral, still drunk, <laughs> to, a, to mourn a person he has no idea who it is. He just read it in the newspaper and okay. he goes to drum up business by going to funerals for dead people he doesn't know and acting like he's a friend of the family. <laughs> and, wow. and he goes and he's, as he's, he gives his, his uh, condolences to the dead body, it's an open casket, he turns around to the mother of the dead, or the wife of the dead person, whoever it is, and, and, and he's saying, oh, my condolences, you know, Frank and I, we knew each other from, you know, blah, blah, and the son sitting next to him goes, you don't know my father. And he gets thrown out. Oh wow! <laughs> That's the opening, and 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 the studio is like, well, who the hell is going to want to see a movie about? Yeah. Who's going to love this guy? Yeah. Right? How yeah. can? 
But that was exactly the point of the verdict, was that that guy becomes a saint by the end. He has an epiphany. He goes through a transformation. Which people want to see. They of course, want, yeah. but, but not in the way, only in the way that they want you to see it. And so those are judgments that Mamet couldn't say, shit, he had been paid a million. He did his job and he moved on to the next job. He's like, do whatever you want with it. But somebody had this, the director had that wisdom to find that script. And so with Shanley, when Shanley signed up for his first films, he was also, you couldn't rewrite him. And, and again, why would you? And um, so, but as time has gone on, two things have happened and they're both toward, they, you can interpret them as bad and good. One, executives have become much smarter on many levels and the good executives that rise to the top are people who are in positions that, you know, they know what they want and they're not stupid and they... So the first thing they do typically is hire writers who don't need notes, who they know what they're going to get from mm -hmm. these great writers. So it becomes harder for writers to break into the industry because okay. everything is so selective nowadays. It's like hard. The longer I go without producing something, the harder it is for me to get a job because now I'm older and now I have less produced and now you're forgotten, and that's not going to help you in an argument about what the tone of the show should be. Wow. So yeah. it's literally you're speaking, and you, what's behind you is either success or failure. If there's failure behind you and you happen to have a winning idea, you're going to take a bumpier ride. If there's success behind you and you have a good idea, you're going to have a more pleasant ride because you're going to say, I did nip tuck. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, that, that's how that works. Like, it's very commonsensical, right? So there's not a bad news to this story other than we are not in a day and age where I grew up as a writer, which is people would take a flyer on me for any crazy thing that I wanted to do because money was loose and ideas were unformed and movies were not so pigeonholed into a certain type of requirement. Yeah, Movies now, to go to the movies is such an expensive event that the film itself needs to be on par with the amount of money they spend. It's like going yeah. to an amusement park now. Like how big is the roller coaster? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And the yeah. movies become what we call tentpole movies or extravaganzas or epics or whatever you want to call them. But mm -hmm. it's literally, there's like a built-in requirement, which is why TV has become a go-to distribution if, uh, place where characters could still exist mm -hmm. so i think movies like that i love from the 70s are now becoming television shows that i love in 2016 2017 these are independent comedies like um on netflix on amazon obviously transparent's brilliant yeah i also love um I want to say cl 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 catastrophe. Oh, I love which is just so great. I think Judd Apatow has a very interesting half hour called Love on Netflix. Yeah, which I think is unbelievably interesting because the main characters are totally unattractive. And, <laughs> I mean, not no, the woman's beautiful, and but they're so attractive. 
hum, in their, hum, their humanity. in their humanity, and I just think that's a beautiful. You know, that came out really bad, but <laughs> no, yeah, but, that's all right. But I love both characters, and and in a way that doesn't have anything to do with you know, because the girl does, the woman does things that are just horrible, and and that's part of her charm. Yeah. And he's just so nebbishy and nerdy that he just drives you crazy. But ultimately, their truth, their authenticity wins out. And I watched that very carefully, that show. I love that show. Because of the fact of who Yeah, are. because I think, it's so, I think it's so authentic. That's a really interesting point, too, of how you're saying... So, I mean, really, it comes back to what we were saying at the very beginning when you asked if we were recording uh, relationships. Really, a good way to get stuff done is if you get the right... You have the right relationships in your life. You get people behind certain projects you do it it helps it really helps i mean i think yeah i because i think i came to writing as an actor i see it as a group event <laughs> you know, it like is i'm the weirdest writer my yeah. friends who are real pure writers i i i i think i'm a little different i think i'm an actor writer you yeah. know and i think that um I've always been a little weird that way. I've always loved my kids climbing on my back and playing music and having them do it. Like I, it's been a strange thing. But I think when I've seen my real writer friends who I admire so much, they're, they always need quiet and they have their offices and they have, you know, and for me, I just, I, I, I'm, I have a different thing. But I also believe very much in um, Bobby Moresco has this place that uh, was like Naked Angels had a place in New York. It was a th and and it was open to writers to bring ten pages at a time. And the actors who were members of Naked Angels, which was a really kind of cool theater company, they're still doing the that. 80s. Really, in the city, yeah. Tuesday it's, nights they do the same. Yeah, that they, was the Tuesday nights. Yeah, it was called yeah. Tuesdays and at the, nine. Yeah, yeah. It's still it's still going on. Are you kidding? Yeah, it's still oh, going on. Oh, that was such a I beautiful. I actually took uh, one of my first scripts from that I filmed this summer there. Oh, that's so great. I remember yeah. when you did that. Yeah. I remember oh, yeah. us talking about that. I mean, I, I remember going and watching Ken Lonergan read 10 pages and oh like and, and Frank wow. Pugliese and all these amazingly great writers who I, I you know, it was funny because like I jumped in to writing like Cinderella story and I got my first film made and I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And these guys had been New York playwrights. They had been working at EST. They'd been working at, you know, they've been just working at actor writer guys like Lonergan and Fuglaze are perfect examples and Shanley and all these. I wasn't part of any of that, you know, and I felt like going to New Tuesdays at nine was a, was a terrific for me, eye-opening experience, and I thought this is what needs to happen. And and so, in a way, they even though they were writing in private, they were putting those ten pages out there to be heard and yeah, yeah. and and see and what the reaction yeah. and hear it. And mm -hmm. you don't, you know, you don't have to take notes from anybody except the people you trust. I mean, Evan, I think Evan Handler was in that group, and he was right working on an autobiography and he was a great writer it was just a such a great thing and then the actor's gym was another place where bobby did that and he does that in la and i've done the last uh two things i've worked on i i did i will now will only do it like if i have a script i want to do 10 pages at a time which is slow because you got to get signed up you gotta hope if you miss a week because mm. everybody's signing up and 10 pages at a time 100 page script you know takes you a little bit of time yeah it took you so long to write it and then you want to go through it but if you really love your uh what you're doing it's worth every mm -hmm. moment 
of car- being courageous and putting it out there, which is, yes, is that Is that one of the things you would recommend for people who are um, just becoming writers? Say someone who's an actor who's started to create their own work for the purpose of they want to be able to work. Um, a hundred percent. I mean, that's how we've gotten so many shows. Like, um, what's the weed show that's on HBO now? The... The weed dealer that goes around um, high maintenance, high maintenance, high maintenance. Yeah. right? It was uh, um, the other musical one, the girl, um, my crazy ex girlfriend, my crazy ex girlfriend, mm-hmm. like, um, yeah. Mis- so I mean, because that's one of the things we wanted to ask is, is what would you recommend for people to do? Because I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I love what you're saying about how each person is an individual, and so different things will work for different people. But um, as far as your suggestions for as a as a first time writer what what are good steps that you encourage like are there certain books that you think are great and helpful are there certain like you saying taking your script and letting people read it little by little uh, and taking it that way is a great way to I think you gotta go to these groups that read 10 pages at a time I think that's the most necessary part of it for sure um I can't think of you find a loving nurturing group you know, not people who are just there to show off how smart they are. And mm-hmm. by the way, what Bob, what Bob Moresco does in the actor's gym is he says to the writer, listen, we're going to put the actor, you're going to hand out the script to the actors. The actors don't rehearse. They just get up. They read your work. And you don't need to hear anything from anybody. You can just, if, if that's all you want, just go sit down. And we've done our job at the actor's gym. And if you only, if you say you do want to hear feedback, then you hear feedback. And at Tuesdays at nine, nobody gave feedback. Mm-hmm. They just got up, read, sat down. And then afterwards you have a drink or you'd sit around and you'd talk and people would give you their, you know, input. So I think it's for actors who are starting to write, it's imperative that they do that because what else are you going to do? I mean, if you sit in a room and, and God bless you, if you can just knock out, you know, the perfect script. But it, uh, to me, it's been the case that it's never been like that for me or for anyone. Any great writers have been... You know, I mean, all the, the best writers do readings, you know, yeah. and, and and readings are what make the writing process. Uh, you can perfect it. It makes it bearable. You learn so much, you know, and as to like worrying about where a note comes from when you are. First of all, if you're at a studio and they're making your show, you're already in a great place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. How you negotiate sure. and how you behave and how you work with others, that's going to be up to you and mm-hmm. whatever got you there. And, you know, you, you not. I'm not saying you have to suck face. I mean, I, I think you have to stand for what you believe in and, mm-hmm. and, you, and, and, they, and they'll know that in the process of developing with you. Mm-hmm. So once you're then going to, in the development process is when you know you're in a bad place with, you know, or not. Which is sometimes hard to recognize it if is. it's your first big chance, you know. Well, it's not hard something. to recognize. If there's very little interaction, yeah. it's good. It's a good experience. If yeah. you're getting lots of phone calls and, and followed up by the person who was listening who then drew up the notes, and now you're going through pages of notes, it's my experience that that's never a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you're that's like, always... that means there's a lot of things that need to be changed. Yeah. How, when you're writing, like, do you... Do you start the same way or do you kind of like, do you find your characters first and write scenes or do you just start writing a story and then you figure out who your characters are? Because that's been really interesting too, like writing this feature 
like we just started writing and we just kind of let it go and then we kind of stopped halfway through and we're like all right let's plot this out and so then we like plotted our first and second and third act but because we had done all that pre-writing we knew who our characters were so right, then right. so now it's been now we know exactly where we're going and why but it's been so much easier because we know what a great process you just yeah, you know yeah again, but i didn't know if there's something that you do or I think that's a great, what you did was great. It was like, and, and good, with, job, Elise. Yeah, good job, Elise. Yeah, I mean, really good job. Rocket. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, because I think, like, I knew, for instance, I knew I wanted to memorialize my friendship with these guys. That was, I felt, really a huge part of who I was becoming. And I also knew that, I, I knew that the theme was that we were never going to grow up. And that was my theme mm -hmm. and so when you have your theme in inevitably it becomes dialogue right like i what is it um i didn't i didn't give birth to you i married you yeah. I, I'm not supposed yeah. to fucking yeah. like let do yeah. it. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. Know, and like that was a great line. I stuff, remember this stuff like that. It yeah. was like, uh, you, who, you know, you're, you're, you're all being chill. I loved what, you know, the line Mamet and Mamet's play, you child. I forget what play I mean something. And I just thought that was so apropos of every 30 year old. I knew we were like children. We were behaving very badly. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to get worse as we closed in on 30 and I was like wow what is the what does adult even mean mm -hmm. like it had no meaning so mm -hmm. but those characters I started writing just those characters mm -hmm. like you did mm -hmm. and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I had no clue all I all I knew is one guy was coming home and I kept writing and writing and writing and then they went and there was a raccoon hunt and then <laughs> And that became like, wait a minute, this felt like, now it felt like a different movie. Like that felt that like felt, a bigger yeah. a something, yeah. you know, it didn't feel, I just couldn't express why, but it just didn't feel right anymore. It mm -hmm. wasn't about what I was talking about. It wasn't, you know, thematically it was so over the top that it's not that it's not just that you won't grow up. It's that you're all sociopaths. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like a yeah. whole different thing. And I didn't really want, and I was trying to spur the cliches. So the raccoon hunt was playing right into like, here they are, the good fellas, you know, bang, bang, let's shoot the, you know what I mean? Like it didn't make me capture. And, and it wasn't really capturing who my friends were. Not, you know, it wasn't really. So, I had nothing and I went right back to like he comes in and then they go out on the town why are they going out on the town and I was like well because he wants to marry her and then that became that was it there's no plot in that freaking movie I mean, I, <laughs> I mean what about what about how you approach Greenport that you just wrote well the way Greenport happened which is I um Greenport happened because of Shannon Goldman's uh, insistence that I not get into the fetal position or go back to becoming suicidal about not getting a movie made that I had written. I don't know if you've heard yeah. about the movie Inappropriate Behavior, but mm -hmm. yeah, because you were, what am I saying? You you acted in Greenport. The show, you know? 
<laughs> you were very good, if I remember. Thank you. It was a little long ago. What was it, three weeks ago? Yeah, it was just um, three, yeah. three weeks. I'm old. It could be 20 uh, years. Who knows? I feel like yeah. time. It's uh, all relative. Which is another thing that we want to talk to you about is inappropriate behavior, too. Well, that the reason Greenport happened was completely because of inappropriate behavior, which that is a whole story in and of itself. And, 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 um, inappropriate behavior was about me and my son. And that's where the, and then my divorce and, 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 uh, and a terrible thing that happened regarding pharmaceuticals. And, and I only can say that if it weren't for the innate comic uh, stylings of my autistic son that I could even dream about telling those stories and having it be a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought the, yeah. I thought the selling point was going to be, it's a comedy about autism. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I just thought that was the lead in. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? Like, yeah. And of course, nobody apparently wanted to do that. But, but they did. They loved the script. People wanted to champion the script. I wrote, I did it at, I did it at the actor's gym it was a, a barn burner. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it never, ever failed to make people laugh and cry hard and demand that the movie get made. It was like unparalleled. And I've had many great reactions to, to character because I write character well and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So people get jazzed up and I'm like, they don't understand there's no plot. You know what I mean? <laughs> this one had a plot. It had a great ending. It was, I structured it. Like I went, I wrote it. I then went to Little Miss Sunshine and Rain Man. And I was like, I'm going to do both of these in some version because I had already done it. Now I was just going to look at the math of it. Like when does act one happen? Like I was, I wanted to be a craftsman. Yeah. I didn't want to just vomit out some interesting thing. I wanted it to be made and I, and it was going to yeah. get made. And, and Shannon and me and my manager, JT, we were going to, we were going to get it made. And, and then, it just got harder and harder to get like Mark Ruffalo read it he's and an, he he's was the awesome. perfect, he would have been perfect and he, he wouldn't do it because he had just played a bipolar character and bipolar bear in that independent film. And I was devastated cause I pretty much wrote it for Mark and I've known Mark forever and I wrote it for him and didn't, and that was, that killed me. And then everybody else I wanted, I couldn't get to, you know, and, um, and then the craziest thing happened. Somehow it got into Charlie Sheen's hands and he w begged me, like literally like begged me to do it. And I was like, oh, Charlie, I'm scared of you because I knew him for forever too. And, and I love Charlie. Believe it or not, he's crazy as the day is long, but he's got a beautiful heart and comes from a wonderful family. And at one time, he was one of the biggest movie stars on mm -hmm. the planet. I, I mean, mean, Wall I, Street, Platoon, you can't get, I mean, it doesn't get better than that, right? Two Oliver Stone Everyone movies. Everyone knows who he picture, is, too. Everyone knows who he is. Yeah. So, and he did comedy for all these years, and mine was a comedy, and he worked with a kid, and like I was like, oh, my God, and I'll do it, okay. And then he came on the Today Show and completely, all the, you know, I had yeah. a $5 million film, and then I had no film. And then, and I was ready to do it with Charlie. I was like, Charlie, and then Char but Char it, Charlie's life became too burdensome and plus you're not going to do a, a cause related film about autism and then have to deal with hiv like it that boat can't float it's too many things at too once Too many causes it's not enough to focus on it's too it's Correct. too much you can't it's focus. too much it just 
So that, so when Shannon said to me, make a show about that guy. In fact, he wanted me to be that guy. Yeah. And I went through all of that. And, and, and really, talk about courage. I needed courage to, to act in it. And, I, and quite frankly, I just didn't have it. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the, the stomach for what it was going to take. So I dropped the age of the character by 15 years. And I, and I found a guy who I felt like who I should be is not who I look like. It's who the character embodied. And I wanted... And, and Rich Kind, who was going to do one of the roles, who's a wonderful comedic actor, said, what you need, Tony, is a, <laughs> a male Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, wow. And, and I knew, he, and, and Shannon and I heard that, and we looked at each yeah. other, and we were like, yeah, that's what it needs. And so we did some preliminary auditions, thinking it would take forever, and in walks Rob, Rob Hancock. And... He is a male, he's a male Mary right? Tyler Moore. <laughs> like you said that, I was like, that's Rob. Oh my God. And it was so, and we just like fell in love with this He's guy great. and nobody knew him and he didn't mean anything and it didn't matter. We, we just were like, we became pure again. You know, we weren't, I didn't have to get Mark Ruffalo or die. I didn't have to make a deal with Charlie. Mm -hmm. It was Rob Hancock who was just <laughs> happy as hell to be, cast in something and 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 we figured you know what that's probably what we should do and the money didn't bail we had enough money to make it and so the idea of the story was purely autobiographical mm -hmm. and with a with some liberties and and flights of fancy yeah you have a story about a guy who was a one-hit wonder 15 years ago who's desperate to get this beautiful movie about his son who's autistic made because his son is so beautiful and funny. And he has his uh, actor and he's got the money and he is so sure that it's going to happen that he co-signs for his parents to go to this very luxurious retirement home. And the day that he moves them in, the actor goes into cardiac arrest and is in a, is in a coma um, and, and, and now he's stuck in this little fishing village where he grew up and his best friend is completely insane and, and wonderfully crazy and, and everybody in the village is going to help him get his movie made. That's amazing. That's beautiful. So it's a kind of, yeah, I mean, the other thing that Rich Kind said beside that wonderful Mary Tyler Moore, he's like, I really don't know what your show is about. <laughs> And that always haunted me. And, and I have to say, if there's one thing that I'm going to really uh, fall in love with about the pilot when I see it, when Shannon's done editing, is if I love the people as much as I love the people in real life in the show, that, that idea of what the show is about, uh, I think it's about what baby boomers have to go through, which is how do you take care of your parents? How do you, how are you a father? And how do you preserve your career? You know, and I, I mean, what was the Mary Tyler Moore show about? She went to work and then she went home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so if this is the new Mary Tyler Moore, um, I, I'm thinking the one line on the show is uh, sometimes you have to leave Hollywood 
to make it in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful kind of sentiment that I'm, I'm going to try to turn that into a show if, if we get a yeah. life after the pilot. I love that line too. I also like both with Queen's Logic and Greenport, I think it's related, is the relationship to place and um, how so, much environment plays into Yeah, and so many uh, stuff on TV, it's like in LA or New York, in LA or New York, and there's no nuance of place and how that affects people. And that, like, I think a place in of itself can be a character um, in a film, in a TV show. So Absolutely. that's something I really. Mm -hmm. appreciate about both of those yeah i love that about breaking bad mm -hmm. you know i think it there was really it, his place there was like i was like wow yeah am i really gonna want to be here every week and then i found myself wanting to be there it's so detailed mm -hmm. right. um yeah so good i hope that i hope that works <laughs> so when you're writing so this is something that as a um independent film writer or our television or web series or whatever it is mm -hmm. um what are what are things that people can keep in their mind when they're writing to keep costs down well all things that are you don't want too much driving you don't want too much explosion you don't want <laughs> well obviously yeah you're not gonna have i mean it just it well it sort of it takes away what you need for drama, which is like, you know, I mean, if you don't have violence and you got to have sex, I mean, it's how to tell a story on a primal level has to have those two things or it's mm. not going to last, period, end of story. And, and I, I don't know if you've heard my, you know, it comes down. I had an act, a great acting teacher who yeah. said that drama is only two things. It's either to fuck or to kill. Oh, I've heard and, that before. And that's, Where you know, that come from? Nico Sakharopoulos okay. used to say that. And, um, and I completely looked at everything and, you know, then fuck becomes um, love or, you know, um, friendship. It, like there are different gradations, right? Yeah. But they definitely, and then um, to kill becomes money, you know, kill, money, greed, avarice, you know, Okay. You know, that kind of thing. So it's like, it, so you, yeah, you could be literal and it actually kind of works. But if you have a literal mind and you want to argue about it, you will lose. Because when you find the connective tissue between what it's about, it's either of those two things, usually. That makes sense. You know what that I mean? That makes like, a lot of sense. Yeah. And yeah. So, so for like catastrophe, for instance, it's absolutely sexual. Like, the whole joke of it is based on the <laughs> fact that they could hate each other and still, you know, they can't stop jumping into the sack. Like their whole first way of their courtship was they didn't know each other's names and mm -hmm. they were just fucking like crazy. And, I'm sure and everyone has had some sort of experience like that. Like, like that. I hate yeah. you. Yeah. Get over here. But that <laughs> was like, that was the, the, it's so beautiful that show. I mean, I, I, anyway, I think that one of the problems with, my stuff is sometimes it doesn't it's not clearly you know one thing or the other and and that's that was true of queen's logic and it's true of this there's almost like a a resistance to my own uh what i learned from my teacher you know um so i, I don't know what you know i don't know that's not going to bode well for the show because it's got a deeper resonant discovering like it's the love of your son mm -hmm. and and that becomes 
something mm -hmm. and how that translates is not as clear and then i had that scene with the realtor mm -hmm. and um you know with ashley and and it was um and it was great to see that yeah that that had to be there yeah you know yeah. And, and if it wasn't there what the heck were we doing yeah yeah so i you know i'm 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 well i mean i i I don't know. It's it's such a journey. Like that's at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's like you can't be focused on the results of things. You have to, you know, it's it has to be about the journey and in the moment what you're learning and what you're creating. Even going back to Sally Fields, she mm -hmm. even says that. She, I was listening to an interview and they were like, what, it, what was it like to be an Oscar winner? And she's like, it's just a moment and then it's over. Mm -hmm. And then it's like you have to be, it's about the work and it's about the next thing. Mm-hmm. And here's where it is about to kill. It's a Faustian deal, mm -hmm. the pilot. The Faustian deal is that he can make it if he gets rid of his child. Mm -hmm. It's practically biblical. Like mm -hmm. he says, you fire your son and you will have what you want. That's the Faustian deal. And that's the heart of it. And that is the part of to kill. That's where if you took you know, what the Coen brothers write about, it's not to fuck, it's usually to kill. Everything in their movies has this wonderful darkness, mm -hmm. you know, which is like greed and, and avarice plays into like every frame of Fargo. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. every frame of it. And yet it's the love between the husband and the sheriff who's pregnant that centers the whole thing. It's like, there's the love and then here's the, the danger, uh, the killing part. Yeah. And it's so, it's mythical the way they do that. And every, like, if you look at um, Raising Arizona, it's like two bad people that aren't bad. They just want a kid so bad. And they, this guy has six of them. Mm -hmm. I just want to take, take one. one. What's the them. problem? Yeah. Like, it's so, <laughs> yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's very, that's, that's kind of what I try to do. But it's in a, it's in a, oddly shaped thing called a pilot because other things have to be introduced as well mm -hmm. so the thread of danny the son had to be metered out throughout and it's only 30 pages yeah so it's not like you're dealing with an hour drama yeah that was the i love i had never written a half hour to produce to to get made mm -hmm. and so that was my it, i had a great time learning old dog new tricks how do you do a 30 minute um new show introducing all these new characters yeah. and relationships as well yeah exactly yeah you what know. would you say are the biggest differences in writing for for television short form as opposed to feature well television short short form exists in two places it's an either an hour right mm -hmm. or a half hour right typically the half hour is a comedy and the hour is a drama or dramedy, could dramedy be yeah for an hour but an hour is 60 pages on network cut to 42 so an hour on cable on hbo is 55 you know you could be 50 or 55 minutes right so you're getting a real bang for your buck with an hour on network is 42 minutes out of 60 Mm -hmm. 
That's very, very tight. It's practically like 30 minutes on cable with no commercials is not that far. Like 22 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. from an hour. Mm-hmm. So it's really, and it's really, and it's probably down to 41 now. But in any case, it's very close, very similar. So the difference was you have to be more concise. You have to build a story, but it, you don't have as much time for, and that might have been, I think our pilot's going to be much longer than 30 minutes because I think that I didn't really, I didn't give up on uh, many characters. I, I went for many characters. Your character should probably not have made it into the pilot. Yeah. Because that it wasn't sense. necessary. Yeah. It, if yeah. it was super focused, it should have been super focused on Bob, mm-hmm. on Robert, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, that Tony Harrison story with the son could have been it. So I may not have learned my lesson yet until I see the cut. <laughs> well, only time shall tell. Yeah. yeah. Join the club, my friend. But yeah, yeah, yeah. with things like Netflix and Amazon and stuff, they that's where people are able to have a 33-minute comedy or a 45, you know, like I'm thinking of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and all those shows. They are, they're not how, how nailed long is down. Unbreakable Kimmy I mean, it's about a half hour, but some of them are longer right, and right. some of them are shorter. So it's right. this whole new idea that you don't have to be confined in this box. Like That's you have, you can yeah. tell a story. That's great. Yeah. And people, and I feel like more people use those outlets nowadays Absolutely. than they yeah. do. Cause I mean, television within itself, like having cable, it's dying. Like it doesn't happen that much anymore. I really, know very few friends who actually have cable <laughs> yeah most people have wow. netflix most people have or they netflix sign on to their parents cable to watch hbo and stuff like, or right. yeah if you have hbo go yeah you, yeah you don't even yeah. Need yeah, you it. pay you pay a monthly subscription for that and then you have like a wow. couple other things because that's what that's what so it's all internet driven mm-hmm. it's all streaming mm-hmm. wow mm-hmm. so that's another I'm such a dinosaur even when i said <laughs> internet didn't, didn't you feel bad for me i didn't feel bad i still for have you. aol I'm still on AOL. <laughs> I am. You don't, you don't, you don't as long as you're not still rocking dial up, because that's just frustrating. Oh my God. Is anyone rocking dial up? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think so. For their um, sake, so. insanity, I don't even I sure think people hope. have phones anymore. No. Like, it's no, not even a thing. Yeah. You can't find a phone in this house. Well, unless <laughs> unless you're getting a cable package where you have to get, like, the phone. The they three. Have, like, we have yes. the, three, the three deal. We get cable, internet, oh, and no, we phone. Have, we have the outlet. We just don't have a phone. Yeah. Yeah, we have phone service. <laughs> we, we just, why would we use it ever? Yeah, because yeah. what's the point? No, no, no. You it's just so use... weird. The whole thing is, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for yes. sitting with us. Elise, is there anything else that you're... I think we covered like, yeah. all the stuff we wanted yeah, to talk about. Yeah, to talk to you about. Thank you so thank much you, for, for having us at your beautiful home with this view. This you, view is bringing me so much serenity right oh, now. Good. <laughs> Especially after a hard Thanks week. for driving out. Yeah. Of course. Um, do you want to promote uh, Manhattan Film Institute? Yes. Where people can find that program oh, yeah. and talk about that just for a second. Yes. yes. I would love to promote that. Well, it's funny because Greenport, the show, is our fall project, which we are so proud of. And then um, we're going to, um, I'm going to come into the city and through Bob Krakauer Studio, I'm going to do a writing workshop with actors and directors and can't wait to do that. So we have awesome. a presence in Manhattan for the first time. And then we have a one-week visual storytelling week that is for actors and directors, and that's for actors to actually learn how to edit and direct their own 
monologues, which we call cinematic monologues, because instead of the traditional shooting of a monologue, we actually take the monologue and then shoot it as if it were happening in a scene. So if there's another person or two, or if it takes place on a roof or in an alley, we shoot it in an alley, we shoot it cinematically so that it's not a monologue so much as it's a scene, which is the truth about monologues. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. Yeah. Right, scenes, not in, especially right? not in film. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in theater, so, if you're going Shakespeare right. style, that's the only way that that really it, is Then that's a, a soliloquy. Thing. Right, exactly. It's not called a monologue. It is so, not. <laughs> so the idea of that is exactly um, what we're doing in the one-week visual, and then the uh, directors get more cinematography uh, to their one week. And it's a one-week, and that's June 26th through... Uh, July 2nd and then we have the gold two-week program which is for actors and directors and we added cinematographers so if people want to come and do cinematography they can and that's July 2nd through July 16th and uh, the website is uh, manhattanfilminstitute.com and this is going into our sixth year sixth year and honestly What's incredible is how much I think our program is doing for professional actors, aspiring actors, aspiring directors, and professional directors. It's like a real workshop, Mm -hmm. and I love that about it. It's not a camp. It's a workshop. It's a place to come and, you (laughs) know. We like to call it film camp because fun. (laughs) He's like, but I hate it. Stop doing it. Well, it it actually (laughs) chased my my first partner was Jeff McCracken, who's a great uh, teacher and filmmaker and producer, and he was like, I'm not doing a damn camp. (laughs) And I was like, okay, okay. We just, what else are we going to call it? Call it something else. But... He never came back after the first year, but we are, you know, MFI, Manhattan Film Institute. We're an institute. I I love our line, which is so true, which is that it's a a boutique conservancy with a world-class faculty. And the idea behind MFI is very simple. It's mentorship all the way through. It's like what I think making a film is actually like. I mean, if you're going to be lucky enough to work with as a writer if you're working with a great director Mm -hmm. that relationship becomes a learning experience as well as a a partnership and 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 that to me is what makes mfi so beautiful it is like the real world because the real world you do learn things i mean you work with clint eastwood you're going to learn a few things (laughs) or else right (laughs) i mean but that's the beauty of it and and so for us we don't we don't back down from the idea that film is a grand collaboration and the ideas that you're espousing about how to start your film and how to write your film it never hurts to include the reactions of others like Mm -hmm. it is not this is not a final product that should be read alone by one person you know on their reading couch it's a group activity it's going to be in a movie theater it's going to be in a tv home uh, viewing place you're going to experience it right and so better to know what the reaction is and learn from it and you know tell the story you want yeah for sure. Yeah, that's beautiful. Awesome. Sixth year, MFI. 
Come you guys join are us. on Snapchat and Instagram too. So we people are can follow. Yeah. Snapchat and Instagram. It's <laughs> like you should listen you to. I know they there. put it on my phone. I have no you idea. You have no idea. I, yeah. I see it. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> like, what's that stupid emoji or whatever the hell? Is that an emoji? Well, it looks like it looks like an what emoji. What is an emoji? It's I mean, it's like the little things, the pictures you can text yeah, yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, that. They gave yeah. me that. I'm like, yeah. what is what this? Is <laughs> <laughs> I I have a friend who has a theory that we're going backwards with language like how they used to just ha- have pictures for for like yeah. hieroglyphics yeah, kind of yeah. yeah we're going back to that with these i mean it, it it's kind of true we've shortened words and i don't put you know what i i don't say that i don't believe fully anything anymore i'm like well maybe there's a possibility i mean <laughs> it takes it takes a lot for me to be like hell no don't no way cuz i'm like right. who who the fuck knows right, maybe. exactly maybe yeah. i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I don't know anything anymore. God. Tony, well, thank, thank you, you guys. So thank you. Thank Good you luck so with much. this. Thank I can't you. wait to hear thank this. Thank you. Yeah, we'll yeah we can't wait you. to share it with you. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.